Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. I'm joined today by the Indy's Associate Editor, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. So we have another amazing show for you this week, uh, but also I want to let everybody know some more exciting news. Uh, we have a new issue, a new print edition of The Independent, which will hit the streets of New York City tomorrow. Uh, our uh, distributors will be going out ac- across the boroughs and dropping off paper. The paper will be in more than 60 public libraries in our red and white news boxes and other public venues. So um, you can also uh, find out the latest from our new issue online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-T-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. But uh, with today's show, we're going to start by getting the latest on what can only be described as chemical warfare that was deployed against pro-Palestinian student protesters at Columbia University about three weeks ago. We're going to learn how they are doing. Thirteen of them were hospitalized. And we'll also get the latest on Within Our Lifetime Palestine, which has led scores of protests across the city since October 7th. The pro-Palestine group has been dealing this month with an intensifying crackdown by the NYPD and recently had its Instagram account suspended by Meta, the parent company of Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp. And later in the show, uh, we're going to discuss one of the articles that appears in the new print edition of The Independent that the article is headlined Breaking News from 1741. Um, it's by uh, indie reporter uh, Theodore Hamm. And uh, it looks at this uh, still shocking uh, ca- uh, miscarriage of justice that took place uh, in that long ago year uh, when 34 people were executed in New York City uh, amid uh, a hysteria about a, a possible slave revolt. 30 of those people were. Uh, uh, we're Africans and four were white. Uh, we're going to hear from um, the longtime anti-death penalty attorney and amateur historian Russell Newfeld about that episode and what it tells us about our criminal justice system as it still as it exists today hasn't changed as much as we might wish. Um, but first, uh, uh, Amba, I mean, what a uh, this more terrible news from uh, Gaza, uh, and we now have. Uh, more than 28,000 confirmed deaths. The I- Israeli army uh, amassed on the edge of Rafah, uh, threatening uh, to enter that city where there's now more than uh, 1 million uh, displaced uh, Palestinians in a city that uh, ordinarily uh, is home to about 225,000 people. Yeah, so um, it's 22,000 people per squared kilometer. Unbelievable. And, and, and most of them are living in tents. They have very little food or water or, or much of anything else. Uh, I mean, this, I mean, it, it feels like and this is what Israel has been shooting for all, all along, uh, uh, pushing people to the very south, and, and I think, in the hopes that somehow they could. Uh, expel them into the Sinai Desert, Egypt. Well, it feels like it, and it's been explicitly what they have stated since at least 2017, members of, I mean, Israeli officials, and then, you know, publicly, Netanyahu at the UN. But, yeah, it, it is. it does feel like it. Yeah, and now, of course, the Egyptian uh, regime, uh, led by General al-Sisi, uh, has insisted that, that that's absolutely unacceptable, and American leaders and European leaders say they also oppose a, a mass expulsion um, that remains to be seen, but it's definitely a, 
a, a horrifying situation yesterday here in New York. Uh, there were emergency protests for Rafa. A number of groups gathered on the south end of Union Square. Uh, there are hundreds of people there uh, urging, once again, a permanent ceasefire. Um, and then also uh, in the evening, uh, there was a group of uh, more than 100 uh, uh, Jewish New Yorkers and allies uh, with a group, uh, if not now, that rallied outside of uh, Senator Chuck Schumer's office in uh, Midtown, New York, uh, they were uh, uh, demanding that Schumer uh, uh, step back from his attempts to to push more aid for Israel uh, through the Senate. Uh, the, the Senate has been in the process of voting on $14 billion more in military hardware for Israel, along with uh, something like another $60 billion for Ukraine. Um, and anyway, it's given what we know, it's it's really shocking and I remember one of the speakers who uh, described how over the weekend to keep the nego- the bipartisan negotiations moving forward, uh, Schumer uh, uh, ordered uh, pizza for everybody to be able to, um, con- you know, uh, not have to go uh, leave the premises. And they ate pizza and watched the Super Bowl while they negotiated, uh, you know, billions of dollars in military hardware for Israel. So nobody can say this is not going to be a, an all-American genocide. Uh, that's Well, we're clearly uh, already in the middle of that. But let's hear uh, from uh, one of the speakers, Ava uh, 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 Borgwart, a national spokesperson for If Not Now. Again, that was Ava Borgwart from uh, If Not Now, uh, a, a, a Jewish-American group that is uh, opposed to the war and ongoing Israeli apartheid in Palestine. Uh, so we're going to now uh, pivot uh, closer here to home. Uh, there's been, uh, of course, a lot of protests up at Columbia uh, University and other college campuses here in the city uh, since uh, this conflict ignited on, in October. And students at Columbia who are opposed to the war and opposed to what Israel are doing have faced a lot of repression uh, from the campus administration, from outside right-wing uh, forces um, and others. And uh, and one of the most shocking incidents uh, so far, uh, students were holding a protest on the quad in the middle of the Columbia campus on January 19th. Uh, and as... Um, Claudia Villalona, a, a student and a reporter up at uh, Columbia, she has an article that's um, that we're publishing on independent.org that really details what uh, followed. Uh, it, just for starters, uh, one of the student protesters named Catherine noticed a very uh, foul smell, uh, something uh, like uh, having a dog poop on your shoes but not knowing where that smell is coming from. And she was later overwhelmed by that smell when she got home. Uh, and she and a number of others ended up in the hospital with all sorts of terrible uh, aftermath uh, from that uh, incident. 
And, and uh, Claudia, welcome to WBAI Radio and the Independent News Hour to tell us more about what's been happening up there since since that fateful day. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so after the attack, Colombia has been, they had a very callous initial reaction, um, seemingly painting the protesters and um, kind of blaming them for what had happened. And following um, an Intercept article that um, detailed what happened on Monday, they kind of backtracked from that um, statement stating that they were launching an investigation and they were um, going to see what had happened. But um, really a lot of student activists and victims have been angered and um, just really feel a lack of support and see the university as complicit for um, both what had happened and in the aftermath, not getting enough support or guidance um, medically, psychologically. Um, no one from the administration, for example, has reached out to Catherine, um, who had been hospitalized twice since the attack. So it's really just a lot of anger on campus. Right. And just right, and- follow follow up here can you just describe uh, some of the symptoms that these students uh, experience i mean this is far, uh, and, and what this chemical was that was used against them uh, i mean this is far more than i mean i've been tear gassed at a few protests and and this is far more than just kind of having your eyes uh, burn for a little while before you you wash it out with some water um so yeah if you can explain what the the, the chemical was and and just the incredible impact it had on people yeah, so the chemical used is uh, an Israeli manufactured chemical weapon called skunk spray, and um, it's used often in um, the Israeli occupied West Bank as a method of crowd control to disperse um, protests. And um, it it's not really published published what it's made with, so it's kind of um, uh, a mystery, but it does have pretty um, intense symptoms for those directly in the um, vicinity of the spray. So Catherine, for example, had witnessed and smelled it and seen its use uh, in the past, but she never had been the direct um, target of the spray. So she had more um, debilitating symptoms such as um, uh difficulty breathing um, and uh, fatigue, just migraines, and then later nausea, vomiting, um, dehydration from the vomiting. So um, a lot of other um, uh, protesters have uh, more mild symptoms, such as uh, eye irritation and um, rashes, but it really... It had a, a delay onset for the most part, so a few days after, but um, it was uh, pretty uh, widespread. And and you said that Catherine's worst symptoms lasted for two weeks, right? Yeah, two weeks for um, from what she had told me, it seemed that um, after two weeks they had gotten better, but that she still felt lingering symptoms of fatigue and um, headaches and things like that. Wow. 
So, um, Claudia, you, you wrote this article really breaking down the context of the action and its aftermath. So explain kind of in somewhat detail how the protest went down. What did people think of these students while it was going on? Um, you know, the alleged attackers, it was reported that they were uh, calling people self-hating Jews. So obviously like harassing openly, but also wearing kefirs to sort of blend in. So how does that yeah, so at the protest there, um, it was a protest to divest. That was their um, central demand. But um, there was two individuals that had seemed to be um, kind of um, not really fitting in. And um, they started harassing uh, the students that were holding a banner that said, um, see you Jews for um, ceasefire. And they called them self-hating Jews, traitors, and things like that. They were harassing other protesters. And um, as this was going on, um, then the the uh, attack happened. And it really took just eyewitness testimony. All of the um, organizers and protesters came together and kind of shouldered the responsibility of investigating the attack and finding, you know, collecting uh, evidence from both witnesses and footage that was taken to identify what who they believe are the perpetrators. Um, and that that's basically what happened at the protest, but um the repercussions of it are are pretty um intense and the students are still feeling it. So and and and, and the student uh activists there they believe that the there were two people that deployed the skunk spray and that these are uh, students from Israel who would have previously served in the Israeli military. Is that correct? I mean, there's a whole program that brings students over from Israel to Colombia. Right. Colombia does have a, um, a partnership with um, different uh, academic institutions in, in Israel and uh, a mentorship program for former um, IOF soldiers. So um, they are believed to be former um, Israeli uh, military soldiers. And they um, there many students um, went back, many IOF soldiers went back to serve, but it seems that it, it's also very alarming that this weapon is not available to civilians. This is only available to Israeli military personnel and uh, the police departments. It sells the weapon too, so it it calls into question how they re- how they obtained this um, spray. Right, and then speak a little bit more about uh, Colombia's reaction <clears throat> and the general hostile environment that pro-Palestinian protesters are finding there and others? Well, a lot of the um, victims and student organizers that I spoke to really just see this as the most recent example of um, the university's failure to support and protect students who are engaged in um, pro-Palestine advocacy. for one, in the aftermath of uh, the attack, there has been uh, no arrests made, and um, a, the medical staff at Columbia Health wasn't notified until, I think, a week after of what had happened. So a lot of the people who went to Columbia Health were um, 
you know, they, the staff didn't know how to help them. Um, I believe one of the students uh, that has been hospitalized has had to set up a GoFundMe page to pay off their medical bills. Um, and even though no arrests have been made, uh, two weeks after uh, the uh, attack, there was a protest in solidarity with um, within our lifetime um, outside of Columbia's gates. And at least 20 protests were made. At least one of them was a Columbia student. And it was, you know, it's amid this, uh, the NYPD's uh, escalation and use of force and aggression against um, pro-Palestine's uh, protesters. And what Catherine um, pointed out to me that was really, you know, interesting is that how can um, student groups and um, activists trust uh, this investigation when um, the NYPD receives uh, training from the Israeli military and one of the partnerships that they have with police departments around the country. So, and also in light of this like increased escalation of um, uh, aggression towards student protesters. So I think really they wanted to emphasize that this doesn't happen in a void and that they see this uh, attack as, as they see the university as complicit. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we have to go here in a moment, but I also just can't help but think when we think about sort of this state of exception that exists at Columbia and many other campuses now where pro-Palestinian uh, voices don't have the same rights as everybody else. They're subject to more violence, more harassment. Um, this is kind of how apartheid works uh, in the West Bank or anywhere else, there's two sets of standards, uh, depending on which group you're in. If you're in the dominant group, you get one set of standards. And if you're in the uh, repressed group, you get other standards and laws and treatment. And so we're basically in a in sort of a micro way replicating the, uh, what Palestinians experience on the West Bank uh, here at Columbia University. Now, obviously not as severe as there, but the, the, the mindset and the injustice and the double standard uh, practice is exactly the same. Right. And I think it's also important to note that um, it's it adds insult to injury. I mean, many students have lost family and friends or actively fear for the safety of their loved ones. And they feel like the administration's lacks of support, repression of their advocacy and right to free speech and um, not taking their uh, reports of harassment and discrimination in the past seriously just adds an extra burden. And right. um, yeah, so it's yeah. a hot climate. Well, uh, Claudia Villalona, um, we thank you for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour, and we will have your very uh, detailed and thorough uh, coverage of this whole episode up on this evening. Uh, independent.org. Uh, later tonight or tomorrow morning we're putting the finishing touches on getting that ready um but thank you so much for all the coverage you've done of this uh very important story to follow up on great thank you for having me our pleasure uh so we will be back uh with more after this short music break Bombing now.
That was members of If Not Now uh, singing Ceasefire Now uh, last night as they marched through Midtown. So, Amba, as this uh, terrible conflict in Gaza uh, continues, there's also the the conflict at home. And one group you followed very closely is within our lifetime, Palestine. Uh, Can you give us a – I know you have an update uh, for us about them and – uh, the situation they're going through right now? Yeah, I have an update um, and a, an interview that uh, we're going to get to hear from earlier today with one of their organizers. So <clears throat> getting to it, within our lifetime, Palestine, known popularly as Wool or Wool Palestine, is a Bay Ridge-based organization that advocates for the liberation of Palestinian people and the lands of Palestine. You know, they're very um, concerned with that um, sort of is saying of it. But the organization, which is a linchpin of the Palestinian community in Bay Ridge, has led scores of protests since October 7th that unapologetically call for an end to the occupation and in returns uh, have faced much hostility from Zionists and other right-wing groups. Uh, Over the weekend, Meta, which is the company that uh, owns Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp, banned the Instagram accounts of both Within Our Lifetime and its founder, Nardine Kiswani, both of which had large followings and provided updates not only on protests, but what is going on on the ground in Gaza and in the West Bank um, as sort of educational tools. Um, they also banned the account of Decolonize This Place, which is a completely separate entity based in the Bronx, um, but uh, does a lot of, does protests with uh, within our lifetime and, you know, does solidarity work. This comes after targeted arrests of Nardine Kiswani and other organizations um, um, two weeks ago and the uh, adoption of a zero tolerance policy of protesting um, for the NYPD against pro-Palestine protests and public speech- speeches. And it's not the first time Kiswani faced censorship. She was, um, censored after giving a commencement speech uh, at CUNY Law in 2022. And the next year, Fatima Mohammed, another one of Wool's leaders, also gave a commencement speech uh, that was pro-Palestine. Uh, and the in the wake of these events, CUNY has actually canceled those uh, student-elected commencement speakers in general. But what I'm saying is this is not existing in a vacuum. Um, and they've all received threats of they all being the lead organizers, harassment, assault, sexual assault. Um, and Abdullah Al-Akhl, who is one of the uh, lead organizers as well, um, is a graduate student at Harvard University. And uh, right now, right-wing and Zionist groups are pressuring Harvard to discipline him for his activism. So I spoke with him earlier today, and I started the convo by asking him to tell me more about the harassment he's facing on campus. Again, this is Abdullah Al-Akhl of uh, Within Our Lifetime Palestine. Yeah, thank you for having me. So what's happening on Harvard is Zionist donors, Zionist groups, and even Zionist individuals 
are pressuring Harvard to potentially take administrative action and reprimand students that are part of the pro-Palestinian movement and are championing some of those voices. And so what we're seeing from the administration is that they are ready to uh, follow through with some of those commands coming from some, some of those Zionist donors, especially someone like Ken Griffin, which has donated $200 million a year to Harvard and who's threatening to pull out that donation until he sees that Harvard is willing to take a stance on this. And so definitely we see that Harvard is, uh, is in the middle zone and we should be seeing a side that they should be taking soon. Uh. All right, that's very interesting, and obviously we've seen, um, you know, with, with the previous stepping down of the Harvard Chancellor, uh, you know, they're they're very prone to buckling um, in front of the Zionists. So you're facing that, and then, you know, now tell us more about what happened with the accounts of both within our lifetime and Nardine Kiswani being banned by Benda, by Meta, basically being taken off Instagram over the weekend. Um, and that also is that's not something quite new. That's something that you all have faced in the past with Wool being taken down, the account being taken down and put back up. But this seems like the longest time it's been down. So what led up to that and how are you all responding and how did it happen? Yeah, so we know that Meta, which uh, owns Facebook and Instagram, has repeatedly suspended the account of Wall Palestine and Nadine Kiswani, who is the chair of Within Our Lifetime, for things that what they want to call is going against their policies, when in reality it is just pro-Palestinian activism, calls for liberation, and actually just talking about the genocide that's taking place in Gaza. And yeah. so... While they have suspended it multiple times, this is the first time that they send a message saying that it has been permanently deleted, like oh. how they have sent that message to other activists and those within the movement. And so we are making it very clear and we are calling out Meta being the ones that are enabling these actions that they are being very clear in choosing their side. When we are talking about justice versus genocide, they are choosing to pick the side of those that are enabling the genocide, of silencing the voices that are trying to talk about it. And so while this isn't new to us, we are still going to make it very clear that Meta needs to be held accountable. And it is slightly different now that you're down for good. Is that for good for good? Is there any chance that the account could be resuscitated or like, no, like it, it's over? Yeah, so per per Instagram, they, they claim that it is permanently deleted and all data has been deleted as well. And so that is that is what Instagram is saying. But um, we are still going to take every avenue that we can to try to bring back the account as if it was one of, or if not the largest account that we've had across many platforms. But we are also making it clear for others to join our Telegram, to follow us on Twitter, and to ensure that we're still keeping this going. What are they saying you you violated? You know, did they did they point to specific, specific posts or because you know what what I've noticed for the most part is you know that you guys you know I mean the leaders of your organization are well educated people. You fact check your stuff very thoroughly, knowing what position you're in. What are they saying you violate? 
Yeah, so repeatedly, and even in this last time, they are always very vague with their reasonings. They don't get into specifics. They don't mention why they, they remove us other than us going against their policies. And in this final removal, this permanent one, they're making it very clear that these accounts, these individuals do not belong on Instagram just because of the views that they hold aren't in alignment with the views of Meta. And that is the clearest statement that Meta can ever give us, making it clear that if these individuals are standing, these individuals and organizations like within our lifetime are standing against genocide, and Instagram does not like to host that, means Instagram is in every way possible telling us and telling the world that is watching that they are pro the genocide that is taking place. Right. And and just a detail here, Nardine's account, was it also uh, taken down for good or was it suspended? Yes, they both received the same message. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so let's talk, um, you, you know, for a moment about that, about... Sure. I mean, there's a lot that, you know, and, and we're on WBAI, so we, we have a lot, we'll be having a lot of, you know, like OG veteran organizers, you know, social media for many reasons is not the ideal place to organize, but do talk to us about like, you know, the positive aspects of your account, the community it created, how it activated, educated people, um, you know, and also probably made some people feel not so alone, but also it was one of the places where you could get, you know, repost of what was going on on the ground in Gaza and West Bank. Yeah, no, 100%. Wolf from its founding always relied on this idea of community organizing, going door to door, business to business, putting out flyers. But then we also recognized the power that came through social media, where we could use a platform to educate the masses, but to also agitate them, to make them wake up and say, I need to take action. And I need to see what is going on in Gaza, in Palestine, and in other occupied places across the world, because that is what's needed in this current moment. And while we know that these platforms will try to censor us, it is so much more of a reminder that if they are trying to censor us so hard, we must be doing something very good. And by recognizing that, we are able to awaken the masses even more to come out stronger than ever. And we're seeing that, that after our page has been suspended, people now more than ever are taking it into their hands to continue to share about what's taking, what's going on in Palestine, what's going on in Gaza, and even what's going on in Rafah, that now more than ever, for the first time, at least in my time with the organization, have I ever seen this many people post our flyer on their own personal pages saying, I might not be part of within our lifetime, I might not be a member, but since you took them down, I align with their values, and you can't take all of us down. And that is the clear message that we're sending by using these platforms and really using them to the best of our ability to educate and agitate the masses. Okay, and I have two more quick questions, uh, and then I'll let you go. We should be done definitely uh, in the next couple minutes. So one is just tell me, you know, what it's like to persevere in the face of all of this. Like, does it feel defiant? Is it more difficult? You all had this censorship happen, and you were immediately back out on the streets for the Rafa emergency protest yesterday, which we'll talk about in a second. But how does it feel to, like, continue going out as you guys are continually attacked? Yeah, at, at first, it's, um, it's, it's tough just because you realize that there are people, there are individuals, there are entities, 
and even multi-billion dollar corporations actively trying to silence you. But at yeah. the same time, there is this, this courage, this fire that, that's burning inside of us, knowing that we are on the right side of history, knowing that even if they take away all of our accounts, even if we have no online presence, we will mm -hmm. still sell the streets. We will still make our voices clear, and we will still shake the world, letting everyone know that what is happening in Gaza is still happening. And what is happening in Rafah is happening, even if a Super Bowl is happening, even if there are major events taking place at the same time. So we still have an opportunity and an obligation to continue the work that we do. And we think of it a lot like an obligation, because if we just think of it as something that we do in our pastime, then it is mm -hmm. something that we can stop whatever. But when we think of it as something that we take upon ourselves, which we do, that we will continue this work by any means necessary. This is something that hits home, not only for us, but for people that have been in this struggle for a very long time. Shah. Um, and last question. So let's do talk for a moment about what is going on in Palestine. What was the emergency protest for um, yesterday? Um, you know, there's this potential imminent uh, ground invasion of Rafah where uh, 1.5 uh, Palestinians, and many of them refugees from the, all the other northern ports of Gaza, because that is the southernmost city, have fled. So right now we have 22,000 people there per um, square kilometer, but I'll let you take it away. Yeah, so the reality is that, that the occupation told everyone that is in Gaza their own home to leave the northern parts of Gaza, to evacuate to the south. And it was repeatedly from October 7th, the south and specifically Rafah was labeled as a safe zone by the occupation. And so many fled their own homes and went down into Rafah to seek refuge, seek refuge in a land that is originally theirs. And so what we saw is that became a very densely populated town in Gaza, Rafah. And what happened was the occupation released that it wishes to create a military operation in Rafah, and it is telling people to leave. And the biggest question is, where do people go? This is their land. They followed what you told them to, to leave from the north into the south, and now there is nowhere to go. And when the bombing started, when hundreds were being injured and murdered, the occupation then came out with a statement saying this was a distraction to release two hostages. Right. And so we are making it very clear that in no world, even if what they are saying is correct, in no world will you take hundreds to be injured, to be murdered as a distraction for two people to come out. And so it is, it, it is so hard to talk about just because this is, this is the reality of what is going on in Gaza, that hundreds are considered a distraction. Whether they are alive, whether they are dead, or whether they are injured, they are nothing more than a, a pawn piece that the occupation uses to get some of their own. And so we are seeing this time and time again, and we see that in Rafah, things are getting tougher and tougher as the occupation continues to not allow fuel, continues to not allow food and water to the border that they are actually there by. And so we know that the situation is dire, but we are going to continue to mobilize everyone to make it very clear that we stand with Rafah, we stand with Gaza, and we stand with Palestine. Uh, reparations for this. And that was Abdel Al-Akhil from Within Our Lifetime Palestine speaking with me earlier today. Um, yep, John. And uh, so everybody, thanks for listening. 
uh, to the Independent News Hour. We are going to be right back after a short music break. Chegavada by Palestinian singer Amal Marcus. So yes, that's a cover of Hasta Siempre by Carlos Puebla, or rather um, a rendition, and that's a Cuban singer Carlos Puebla. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I am Amba Gergarian here with my co-host John Tarleton, and we are very happy to be airing to you this Tuesday night. Um, every Tuesday night at 5 p.m. while you're driving or sitting or walking around the subway um, or on a run or picking up your kid from school, we are here uh, thanks to WBAI. Um, and that's how, you know, we're able to funnel the news to you. And the way that WBAI is able to funnel the news to you is by you by funding us. So yes, this is a funding pitch. We do need money to keep running um, and we need money to keep thriving, to bring out new shows and to continue doing the excellent work that we are doing here, bringing um, people like Abdullah Akhil that we just spoke with, uh, you know, one of the lead organizers within our Lifetime Palestine, people that are fighting against the genocide in Gaza right now, um, and uh, young writers like Claudia Villanova that we had in the first segment, um, 
you know, it's all because of uh, your support and because, and that, that sounds cheesy and corny, but it really is what it is that, that, that what it come down to at the end of the day. That's why we're able to put this work out in a way that is accessible. So please do support the station if you are able to, um, and you don't have to be rich. Uh, you know, you can support the station if it's a value to you. Um, you know, usually the people who give money to homeless people are not rich people. And <laughs> I'm not saying empty out your pockets if you're broke, but, um, you know, give what you can to keep being able to listen to the radio because I know that when I go onto BAI and it's only, you know, uh, pitching programming or, um, you know, the antenna's being worked on and the radio's down and I don't get to hear it, I'm missing something, you know? Um, um, so I wouldn't rather li- to listen to a podcast, and sometimes I wouldn't rather listen to music. Uh, so please keep us on the air, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950, or go online to give the number 2WBAI.org. That's give the number 2WBAI.org, and keep Indie Radio on the air. And so another thing that is really interesting about uh, the independent that I was the independent, well, yes, about the independent, but sorry, but also about WBAI that I was thinking about earlier today is uh, the fact that we're able to speak to you in like regular tones. I mean, sure, I have a little bit of my news voice, but, um, you know, the reporters um, will just any sort of anchor at big station, but specifically... <laughs> The NPR reporters take on such a tone of sort of um, neutral condescension. Uh, so thank God for WBAI and allowing us to speak in ways that are normal and natural and exciting. So please do keep us on the air. Whatever you can, you can give monthly, become a buddy for $10 in the name of the independent. You get perks, um, both physical and um, uh, uh, intellectual perks. And that's two and spiritual. You're, you're helping part, keep sir. this unique radio station on the air. That's a lot of good karma for you for merely $10 a month or more. And, and, uh, yeah, that number again is 212-209-2950. You can go online to give number two WBAI.org. And I'm, but, you know, listening to that, your interview with, uh, Abdullah from a few minutes ago, uh, one thing that was striking is, uh, um, Within our lifetime and their dean and uh, decolonize this place, all losing their uh, Instagram accounts that have tens of thousands of followers that they really rely on to communicate with people uh, as events unfold. Uh, that just shows in our current moment you know, the incredible power of these like, sort of tech overlords, uh, and these ginormous corporations uh, that control so much of the, of the uh, flow of information. Uh, that, that we have and why it's so unique and so important uh, to keep entities like WBAI on the air, 64 years of broadcasting here in New York. You know, if, if uh, someone who supports Palestinian rights like speaks forcefully and truthfully on WBAI, they're not just going to be zapped and <laughs> disappeared. Their voices are going to be heard. Same with uh, the independent, our, our um, newspaper that's been printing for 24 years here in New York. So uh, while sometimes these sort of uh, media platforms like radio and print might seem a little bit uh, dated compared to the sleek and, and and digital platforms we have, 
uh, having that analog capability is still really important. And again, especially with the kind of instant censorship that can happen, uh, like we're seeing uh, with those Instagram accounts that were reaching so many people before they were just vanished. Banned. Yeah. yeah. Breaking so, company policies. Right. So one more time, please, people, 212-209-2950. Help keep this station on the air. Uh, the only the only people that can make this station vanish are as if we don't have enough supporters to keep us uh, broadcasting. But we want to turn to our final segment. Uh, as we mark Black History Month throughout February, uh, we, we're going to look back at an earlier era in New York City. Uh, it was a very different world in many ways, but not so different in others. The year was 1741. New York City had a population of 11,000 people, mostly uh, below what we would now call Canal Street in lower Manhattan. About one-sixth of those uh, people were enslaved. Uh, that winter, there was a spate of arsons and, and, and burglary, uh, in many cases targeting the property of some of the uh, wealthier uh, uh, New Yorkers of that era. And, and there was a, a, a intense hysteria around the possible slave revolt and all the fears that uh, came with uh, living in a society where so many people were uh, held in bondage. And our next guest is uh, Russell Newfeld. He is a longtime attorney uh, here in New York who uh, fought the death penalty for many years when that was an issue in New York. Uh, he also uh, uh, was the head of uh, Legal Aid's Criminal Defense Division uh, in the early 2000s, oversaw 600 uh, public uh, defenders here in New York City, uh, longtime opponent of the death penalty. And he's also uh, done a lot of historical research, recently published an article looking back on the events of 1741. We have an article in our new issue of the paper that our reporter Ted Ham drew on Russell's work. Um, uh, Russell Dufeld, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. So uh, we, we, we still have a few more minutes here. Can, can you uh, kind of quickly depict uh, the world of 1741 and, and what happened uh, as this hysteria uh, built in the city about the prospects of a slave revolt? Sure. The, um, New York City in 1741 had a large slave population, probably about 20% of the population were enslaved people. And there were also a significant number, a small number um, of uh, free black people in the city. And there were uh, a small number of slave owners. They were the, the wealthiest people in the city. And the city um, ran a lot on the labor of slaves, uh, indentured servants, and um, poor white people uh, who were mostly Welsh. The slave owners were overwhelmingly English, Dutch, and there were two... Uh, Jewish slave owners that, whose slaves were picked up um, in the, this slave conspiracy um, prosecution. But it's, I think it's important to, to note that it wasn't just that there was a hysteria about a potential slave revolt, that a lot of the people in New York City, a lot of the 
white people, both leading people and, you know, plain folks, uh, didn't believe that there was a slave revolt. But enough prosecutors and judges and powerful people did that they started picking people up. And um, there was a fellow by the name of Hudson who ran a tavern on the west side, uh, south of Cortland Street, just above where Trinity Church is. And he was a fence. He bought and sold stolen goods. And he worked um, a tavern with his wife, his daughter, and an indentured servant. And um, they ran the tavern, and they worked the fencing operation. One of the main people that he dealt with who was a fence was an enslaved man who um, was a burglar, and he would burgle uh, stuff from uh, local merchants and sell it to Hudson, and then Hudson would resell it to other merchants. And at one point, that led the, the cops to his to Hodgson's after a, a particular burglary, and Mary Burton, who was the indentured servant, she was 16 years old, um, decided to cooperate, and she was looking for uh, to get out of being her indentured servitude. She was looking to get a reward that had been offered for information about fires that had been set, and um, she was looking to get out from under criminal prosecution for being part of the fencing operation. And at the same time, there was a, an enslaved man who was um, married to a, a woman who was also enslaved, but she was the uh, slave of the acting governor who lived inside the, the fort. And the, the acting governor, Clark, decided that this fellow was becoming a pest and hanging out around his, his slave, Barbara, who was uh, his cook and was uh, interrupting, interfering with her, doing her work for him. So he... Yeah, let's... Um, he, if we can just... Uh, jump ahead a little bit, I can, uh, uh, Russell Newfeld. Can you describe the the trial kind of in, in a nutshell? The trials and how they kind of uh, uh, spiraled into the situation where thirty four people, including thirty uh, uh, blacks, were executed uh, over a, uh, several months. Right. Yeah. So I mean, what happened is uh, the, the 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 fellow who's um, was not allowed in the fort anymore, started a fire and burned, which burned down uh, Governor Clark's mansion inside the fort and other buildings. And after that, there were some other fires set. The, m- most people at the beginning thought it was pretty clear that the people who were doing this were doing this so they could uh, take advantage of the fires to steal stuff. And one of the guys who got busted a white indentured servant named Arthur Price got busted for stealing stuff during the fire at Clark's mansion. And he's in jail. And, and now Mary Burton, this other white indentured servant's in jail, too. 
and they come up with a story that, in fact, the whole thing, the fires and the, the burglaries and the stuff at Hodgson's were all part of a giant slave revolt, and that dozens and dozens of enslaved people came to Hodgson's and had a big feast and swore an oath to um, kill all the white men and marry all the white women, and that Hodgson, who was white, was going to be the king, and uh, other people were going to be generals, and they were going to take over New York City. And this was all uh, bullshit. It, none of this ever happened. Um, but they saw it as a way to get out from under their own charges and get some reward money and get out of being indentured servants. And the prosecutors and the judge, um, Horsemanden, and two of the main prosecutors, John Chambers and Joseph Murray, after whom Chambers Street and Murray Street in Manhattan are named, ran with it and prosecuted dozens and dozens of black people and a small number of white people. They prosecuted, um, every, every, they'd bust someone and they tell them the only way you can save your life is to name other people who were part of the conspiracy. So people would just start naming other people to save their lives. And then those people would get busted and they would do the same thing. And each time, Well, it's not that different than today. No, it's not. And each time they <laughs> name somebody, they'd bring that new person to Mary Burton and she'd say, oh, yeah, that guy was at the feast. That guy took the oath. That guy's part of the plot. And and who would and so relate this to to why you know I was very shocked when I found out who the judges were why their names were so familiar to me. The prosecutors and the lawyers. Uh, Chambers and the lawyers. Murray, yeah. Sorry, the prosecutors. The prosecutors. Pardon me. Yep. And one of the Judge Horseman, who was the main judge who dealt with this, and the chief judge at the time, Judge Delancey, after whom Delancey Street is named, also decided that. The, the Pope had to be involved in this because, you know, they, they couldn't believe that a bunch of enslaved people would figure this stuff out on their own, and they must have been put up to it by someone. And they busted a um, a white guy who was a teacher of Greek and Latin because Latin is the language of the Roman Catholic Church. And at that time in New York, it was a capital offense to be a Jesuit priest. So they charged him both with being behind the plot and being a Jesuit priest, so he could get killed twice. And, um, in fact, he wasn't a Jesuit priest. He was a dissident Episcopal minister, but they didn't care about that. They, they really didn't care about anything. They disregarded any defense witnesses, and, th and this is in a situation where there were no defense attorneys. There was a judge right. who was a prosecutor himself, and then there were the prosecutors, and then there were, you know, enslaved people, and a bunch of white people, and no defense attorneys at all for anybody. Um, and they wound up burning 13 black people at the stake. They hanged 17 black people, and they hanged four white people. They hanged Hudson, his wife. Um, right. Uh, uh, Russell Neufeld, we're going to have to uh, wrap up here very shortly. Uh, I know, in addition, you're calling for everything from uh, the the names of the streets for Chambers and Murray to be changed or at least historical plaques to be affixed there. You want them to be posthumously disbarred. Also, reparations for the descendants of the falsely 
convicted and executed individuals. Um, we want to continue to follow the story. We encourage everybody to pick up a copy of The Independent. It has more about this uh, shocking event from an earlier era in New York history. Uh, Russell Newfeld, again, thank you for joining us on WBAI. Uh, Amba, what's our outgoing music here? It is Go Down Moses by Louis Armstrong, and thanks to Reggie Johnson, our board operator. Oh, <laughs>